Well, if you have those Bibles, we're in Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to begin reading in verse 11. So then, remember that at one time, you Gentiles by birth, called the uncircumcision by those who are the, th the circumcision, a physical circumcision made in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace. In his flesh, he has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall, that is the hostility between us. He has abolished the law with its commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one hu new humanity in place of the two, thus making peace, and might reconcile both groups to God in one body through the cross, thus putting to death that hostility through it. So he came and proclaimed peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, both of us have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are citizens with the saints and also members of the household of God built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are built together spiritually into a dwelling place for God. So I want to begin with the Tower of Babel. In the third generation after the Great Flood, the third generation, likely sometime around the birth of Shem's grandson, Peleg, humanity decided to build a city in a plain in Shinar. Now, debate remains as to the exact location of Shinar, and you can find a number of different opinions. But I'm of the opinion, and I think that this is the opinion of most scholars today, that Shinar is a Hebraic form of the word Sumer, and therefore refers to the region controlled by the Sumerian Empire. So that would be between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers in modern day Iraq. So that's where we were historically, I think. The goal of this project though, of coming to this plain in Shinar and building a city has been described in Genesis chapter 11, verse four. So this is what the text says. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we shall be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. Now, the first command that God had given humanity when he first created us can be found in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. It says these words, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. Now, in these early chapters of Genesis, humans seem to have had no difficulty at all obeying the commands of God to be fruitful and multiply and to exercise dominion over the other creatures of the earth. They seem to do that quite willingly, no problem. But for some reason, the filling the earth part of the command was something they did not want to do. Their expressed desire here in Genesis chapter 11 was that they would build a city on the earth so that they would not be scattered over the face of the earth. So they don't want to do that. You and I could probably imagine why they don't. And maybe some of what we're going to talk about will help to illuminate that. At that time, in Genesis 11, in the third generation, somewhere around there after the great flood, 
they had one language. All humans spoke the same language, according to the scriptural testimony, and they wished to be one nation with one capital city. And in Genesis chapter 11, God thwarted this project by scrambling their languages and forcing them to be scattered over the face of the earth, as he had commanded them to do in Genesis 1. He forced them to do in Genesis 11. But this project was not abandoned by the people of the earth. Some people groups were content to remain small and segregated. We see that throughout human history, even some today. But throughout history, superpowers emerged with a desire to revisit the Babel project. And this has happened over and over and over again. Some tried to, to unite the diverse peoples around them through diplomacy. Some tried to do it through trade. Many did it by war and conquest, and a few used all of these things to bring the peoples around them together or some combination. But for each of these superpowers, the goal was the same, one nation out of many, one nation ruling the others. In the days when Paul wrote the epistle that we just read from to the Christians in Ephesus, they were living in the midst of what today scholars call the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And in terms of the total landmass on earth, we should probably admit that Rome controlled a very small amount. They really just controlled the region around the Mediterranean Sea, which is not insubstantial, but it's not the whole earth either. But it was a vast empire, as close to the vision of Babel as any to that point in history had managed At its peak, was inhabited by between 50 and 90 million people, which at the time was 20%, about 20% of the world's population. So it's a big empire. The Mongol Empire, which was founded by Genghis Khan, would eventually supersede even the Romans. His empire exceeded uh, that of Rome, 33 million square miles, and it was inhabited by over 100 million people. So again, the spirit of Babel is with us, one nation to rule the rest, one nation to dominate the other peoples. And perhaps no period of history was more representative of this continuing desire in the hearts of humanity than that of colonial Europe. The European nations that emerged, and they emerged from the rubble of the Roman Empire, we talked about this in our Daniel series and in our Philippian series before that, Together, they came to exercise more influence upon the people and the land of the earth than any previous. According to an article written by Jessica Stoller Conrad of Caltech, from 1492 to 1914, Europeans conquered or colonized 80% of the entire world, 80%. The Babel spirit has remained. And even here in the United States where I live, the Babel spirit was alive and well in our own nation building. The Latin phrase e pluribus unum, which means out of many one, is the motto of the United States and appears on our national seal. Now, originally, that phrase seems to have meant, at least for the founding fathers, that the many independent states were coming together to form one union. However, in the decades ahead, now past for us, that vision would be recast in Babelesque terms. The core sentiment 
has been inscribed on the pedestal of the Statue of Liberty. I'm going to read this. Some of you maybe have seen it on Ellis Island, but this is what it says. It's called the New Colossus. It's a bit of a poem. Not like the brazen giant of Greek fame, with conquering limbs astride from land to land. Here at our sea-washed sunset gates shall stand a mighty woman with a torch, whose flame is the imprisoned lightning, and her name, Mother of Exiles. From her beacon hand glows worldwide welcome, her mild eyes command, the air-bridged harbor that twin cities frame. Keep ancient lands your storied pomp, cries she, with silent lips. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. It was written by Emma Lazarus, November 2nd, 1883. In that vision, which became the dominant sort of vision of the late 19th, early 20th century America and provided a boom of immigration from countries all over the world, is that all nations would send, not their best and their brightest, but their meekest, those who wanted something more from every nation on earth, the sons and daughters of many nations would come together and form one nation. In many ways, the guiding vision of the United States has been to rebuild Babel differently than had been built before, not through conquest, not through diplomacy, but through immigration. And this new Babel-like nation, out of many, one, has become, in terms of trade and finance and military power, very near a global capital, with as much or more influence as any in history have ever achieved. The Babel spirit is still with us. But what does that have to do with what we just read in Ephesians? It has everything to do with it. Because what I am describing is the biblical distinction between Christ and Antichrist. Now, the Antichrist has become almost a mythological figure for those of us in, who were raised as Christians. But Antichrist in the Christian scriptures is um, it's an ideology, and it certainly is embodied by different individuals over time. And the scriptures teach that it will be embodied in its fullness at the end of time before Jesus comes. But we often think of this as kind of this shadowy, demon-possessed, charismatic figure, a singular individual. But that's not really the biblical idea. In 1 John, John will tell the believers there in the first century that the Antichrist is already in the world, and many Antichrists have come. And then, of course, the book of Revelation, also written by John, will talk about an Antichrist at the end that seems to just summarize all of the Antichrist powers. But what the Antichrist is essentially is an attempt to bring the kingdom of God without Jesus. It's somebody or an ideology or a nation or a people or a philosophy or an approach to life that attempts to bring the kingdom of God to earth without the need of Jesus being the king of that kingdom. It's set up by us somehow. So the Antichrist is the one who stands in place of Christ. He is against Christ. He is a substitute Christ. He is one who claims to do for us, whether it's a nation, a philosophy, an individual, or whatever, 
claims to do for us what Jesus has done for us and what God says Jesus will do for us. This person claims to do for us. That's the Antichrist. Paul reveals to us in the verses that we just read in the book of Ephesians that God does want to set up one nation out of the many. That he did, in fact, choose Abraham, not essentially to reject the other nations of the earth, but to begin a process of reclaiming them. So the desire to regather what God had scattered at Babel under one king is actually God's intention. But the nations of the earth are going about that in their own way. They want to be the king. This is not just the Babel spirit, as I've been calling it. It's the Antichrist spirit. Because God does want to unify the nations of the earth. That's what Paul's talking about in Ephesians. But under Jesus not under anything else. Any attempt to unify the nations of the earth under a ruler other than Jesus is anti-Christ. Not only anti-Christian, it is the spirit of the anti-Christ and it is the spirit of Babel. In fact, you'll find as you study the scriptures that sin, not always, but maybe more often than not, is an attempt to accomplish God's goals, good aims, in ways that go against him. That is essentially what sin is. Sin is not always aimed at bad things, but the way in which what we're aiming at is accomplished is done by ways contrary to the things God has asked us to do, the ways in which he's asked us to walk in the world. And that starts to be what Paul is talking about here in Ephesians as he tries to define what the church is. Now, we've talked in sermons past about the fact that the church is not setting up a kingdom of God on earth. We are a community in exile. And Jesus, this is what the book of Revelation is essentially about, has to free us from Egypt. The book of Revelation takes that story and and brings a cosmic sense to it. So there's no expectation in the New Testament or in the Old. Well, maybe in the Old because Israel was a nation on earth, but certainly not in the New Testament that God would establish a nation on the earth to do this job for Jesus. That is the Antichrist uh, impulse. Only Jesus can set up this kingdom and only he can lead it. The Antichrist at his most subtle claims to be doing what he's doing for Jesus. But no one will lead for Jesus. Jesus is Lord. There is no sub-Lord. Jesus is Lord. So this is all bound up in Ephesians. It's not what Paul's target is in Ephesians chapter 2. We're dealing with issues far askew from what Paul was dealing with in Ephesus. But his basic understanding is there. I'm going to run through the text now somewhat quickly to bring us, I think, to what, how we need to apply this today. Because there are two goals of a message. The first is that you will understand a text in its context and its basic moves and the argument being made in a book like the book of Ephesians. But the second part is also that you would know how this applies to where we now stand. And that's kind of the, the gap I'm trying to bridge with this introduction. So Paul reveals to us in Ephesians that The Babel spirit that has been present throughout human history is actually a rebellious attempt to do what God wants to do. Does that sound like a contradiction? It's a rebellious attempt to do what God wants to do. God does want to unify the nations of the earth under one banner. But he does not want that banner 
to be held by any human or nation on earth. So Paul begins in chapter 2, verses 11 through 16, and you can look at the text there, by explaining what had to be done with the law, the Torah of Moses. So I'm, what I'm about to say is not, and I don't think Paul is saying here in chapter 2, about dismissing the Torah. But the Torah is more than ethics and rules. With the law of Moses comes an assumption that had to be done away with in order for God to accomplish what he wanted to accomplish in Christ. And the basic assumption is that Israel and the nations had to be separate. In fact, you might say that the Torah itself is a way of making Israel distinct from the nations. And that had to be done. God was carving out a space for the gospel to be preached. And so much of what we find in the Torah is about separation. And so the law itself was very much about making Israel a unique nation separate from the other nations. And the law sets up walls and boundaries. And anyone outside of that is a Gentile. And anyone who comes within it can be an Israelite or a resident alien uh, a proselyte among the Israelite people. And so that idea of separation in its very essence assumes that there are two people groups on the earth, Jews and Gentiles. Now, the goal of God is to reunite from the beginning, to reunite the people of the earth. So it has to be temporary. That separation is temporary and for a purpose. And that's what the new covenant reveals. The problem is the old covenant is permanent. The law of Moses is not a temporary covenant. And so how can the people of Israel be free from that covenant to join this new people that are coming together under Jesus, both Jew and Gentile? Well, that's the language of being born again. The Jewish people have to die to that covenant. They have to die with Christ. That's one of the ways the cross abolishes. That's what Paul is saying here in chapter 2, verses 11 uh, through 16 that the cross of Christ abolishes the law. The people of Israel die. This is something um, you can find more fleshed out in Romans chapter five through seven. But the people of Israel die with Christ and they can be raised to new life so that they can enter into a new covenant. And this is a covenant, a new covenant with Israel as the firstborn, but also with Gentiles. And that's the mystery revealed in these last days. Up until the ministry of Jesus, and the way that it began to unfold in the life of the apostles, there was no expectation that Gentiles could become one nation with Jews under God by faith, that, by faith in their Messiah. That was never understood. Paul calls it a mystery revealed in the fullness of time. So the separation of the Torah had kept these two people groups apart. The reason God abolishes the Torah is not because the ethics aren't, aren't consistent, not because he wants different laws and he's going to allow people to live differently. He abolishes it because he no longer desires the separation of Jew and Gentile under Christ. He is reuniting the peoples of the earth in Jesus. So that's essential. Secondly, God wants to build out of these people groups a new nation on the earth. But this is Babel on God's terms and not on ours. This is verses 16 to 18. You can see how he extends the, the language. I'm not going to read the text again, though. You can look at it. Babel had at its heart, this is in Genesis 11, a, a tower, most likely given the region of the world that this was done in, a ziggurat. And a ziggurat was meant to be a place where a god would come and dwell. So they were meant to be very tall. They were meant to be beautiful. They were almost imitation mountains. 
The belief in the ancient Near East was that uh, the gods assembled on mountains and remote places inaccessible by humans, and that they were beautiful places. They had, like the Garden of Eden, they had lots of food and lots of fruit and lots of rain, all things that the average nation in the Middle East did not experience on a regular basis were on these mountains. And so a ziggurat was meant to be, as far as we can tell through history, a sort of mini mountain. And they went out of their way to make it an appealing place with the hope that a God would come and dwell in their city and that God would become their city's God and he would protect them and fight for them and have some ownership of them. That seems to be what they were doing there. And of course, they wanted the God to come to their city. And the God did come and did not like what they did and scrambled their languages. Maybe they regretted calling him there. But that's the essence of Babel. And God revealed through Paul that he did indeed, that they had anticipated what God wanted. He did indeed want to dwell among his people. He does that in the temple, the tabernacle in the wilderness. He does it in the temple in Jerusalem. But a more intimate way, he also wanted. He had a different design, though, than the builders of Babel, which is why he had to scatter them. He wanted Jesus to be the ziggurat, to be the temple, to be the place in which God dwelt among his people. And anyone in this new covenant who puts faith in Jesus, who trusts him to be the God he claims to be, to be the rightful ruler of the earth, the one who can write and execute the laws of God, who can tell us how to live and demonstrate to us what it means to be citizens of this kingdom. Those who believe that about Jesus and trust him, and by that trust, show chesed to him, love him with all their heart, soul, and strength, and then through that love, love their neighbors in the way that he asks. They, no matter what nation they come from, can be part of this new nation. That's the mystery of the gospel. And Jesus is the cornerstone of this new temple, this new people. Interesting word. The Greek is akrogoni. Ayas, I think. Acrogoniaios. I think that's how I would pronounce it anyway. And it's not clear what it means. Some of you maybe have seen different translations. Sometimes it's translated capstone or keystone, and other times cornerstone or foundation stone. And that's because of the different ways the word is used in the First Testament. And nobody's quite sure how Paul is using it here. You'll have to guess. I'll give you my best guess, but you'll have to come to an educated conclusion yourself. In Psalm 118, which is a passage Jesus quotes, that's the one that many of us have heard, that the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone or the keystone. In that context, it seems to be the stone that's placed at the pinnacle of a pillar or at the center of a finished building, finishing the architecture. But then we have Isaiah 28 verse 16, where this rejected cornerstone is talked about as the foundation stone. And a foundation stone is different, like a keystone or a capstone could be the stone at the center of an arch that keeps the door in, in ancient ways of building, keeps that, that arch and door frame or pass through uh, secure and strong. It could be a keystone that sits on top of a pillar, but a foundation stone was used as the first stone laid in the foundation by which all the other stones were oriented. 
So they were all aligned with that stone. That became the stone that dictated the, the direction of the building and the way everything would be laid out. And in Isaiah 20, 28, 16, he says that God is going to lay a cornerstone that at the foundation of the building, and he's going to build the temple on it. That's the implication, the people on it. So which one is Paul getting at? Is Jesus at the foundation or is he at the top? Is he at the center of the arch? Or, well, people debate this. The scholars, as far as I can tell, I did all the research as far as I, well, maybe not all the research, but I think sufficient research to say both arguments are pretty strong. My best guess is that we're talking foundation here and not capstone, because it looks to me like what Paul is describing is the foundation on which the people of God must be built. And foundations in this way of thinking of architecture are much more important than the structure built on them, because the foundation, everything rests on it. And I think this is similar to Paul's image in Romans chapter 11 of the olive tree onto which branches are grafted. In that image, clearly Jesus is part of the vine, as are the patriarchs and the prophets and the apostles. And the rest of us are branches grafted in. I think that's the same kind of thing he's talking about here. So that's my best guess. But in either case, Jesus is the one in whom the building finds its coming together. Whether he's the last stone place to finish the building, the capstone, or whether he is the foundation stone, the first stone laid. I think foundation stone most likely. But what we're learning here is that God is indeed building a city and he is indeed building a tower at its center, a temple, a place for himself to dwell. But he is dictating these terms and Jesus is his cornerstone and the people of God are its temple. And so he is building what the people of Babel wanted to build and what the nations of the earth have always been trying to accomplish. God is doing in Jesus. And that's the mystery of the gospel, but he's doing it on his own terms. He is building a temple for the Holy Spirit. He is building a temple of the Holy Spirit. He is building a dwelling place for himself amongst the people of the earth. And in the past, that was done physically, right, with a tabernacle, with a temple. But God tabernacled amongst us, the Gospel of John says, in the flesh of Jesus. And Jesus becomes the living, moving temple. And then in Paul's estimation, he becomes the foundation stone or the capstone of a building that God is building. And this correlates with what Paul says, that we are the living stones of the temple of God. So God, the, the temple is a people. What's important here is how God understands the architecture of what he's building, how this central tower in the city that is the capital of the earth, how it functions, how it's built. And it's built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles with Jesus as the chief cornerstone. I'm understanding that as foundation stone. So who are these people? Prophets in the First Testament are those through whom God speaks. Their primary task later in Jewish history and into the New Testament is to make sure that the people are reading the revealed word of God to their point in history and that they are applying it to their moment in history correctly. And God often aids the prophets with this task. And so many prophets speak directly on behalf of God, and many of them 
there are probably many more than we have recorded in the scriptures, but they are there in the scriptures. So the first person in the scriptures called a prophet is Abraham. God called him a prophet in Genesis chapter 20, verse 7. Abraham is a prophet. Moses is the next one called a prophet. We can find that throughout Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, but it's Deuteronomy 34, verse 10, in which God himself calls Moses a prophet. And then there are many prophets. There's one more in the book of Judges that shows up, and then Samuel is the next one called. And then there'll be a whole uh, bunch of prophets. The goal of the prophets, though, the, the, well, I shouldn't say the goal. They can't set the goals. God chooses the prophet. But their task, their purpose is to speak what God tells them to speak. Most of the time, they're applying the word of God to this moment with an authority that comes from God. This is what this means for us now. That's often what they're doing. Occasionally, to prove they have the right to do that, God will have them predict something so that it can be shown that what they're saying is from God because they're able to say something that they have no ability to know if God were not speaking to them. So this is what a prophet is. Paul tells us that the, this new building, the ziggurat, the tower in the center of the city, the temple is built on the prophets and the apostles. Now, the apostles, and I'd like to read this to you because I, there's a lot of weird stuff going on with apostles nowadays. A lot of people call themselves apostles. I am greatly blessed myself that the Bible actually defines what an apostle is for us. And this is in Acts chapter 1, verse 21. So you remember Judas was one of the original, Judas Iscariot was one of the original 12 disciples of Jesus who were called apostles. He betrayed Jesus by telling the people where he was and taking money for it. And he then hung himself. He, he died. And so now they had only 11. And they're discussing how to replace, whether or not it's appropriate to replace one of the 12, or if they just needed to leave his place vacant. And they did some reading in the Psalms to see if it was okay to replace something like this. And they thought that it was. And then they list out the criteria for what they would use to determine another apostle. They had to meet certain criteria. And this is what it says. This is Acts chapter one, verse 21. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us to his resurrection. And there were only two men that they were aware of who met those criteria. And so they end up casting lots between those two men. Paul also becomes an apostle because Jesus meets him on the road, tells him the same kinds of things he told his disciples, and then uh, sends him to bear a message to the Gentiles. Paul will call himself as one unnaturally born, but he had an actual vision of the resurrected Jesus and was specifically taught by it. So the apostles are essentially someone who could be an eyewitness testifier to the life, ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, and had been commissioned by Jesus to bear that message to the rest of humanity, both Jew and Gentile. And so that's an apostle. And Paul says that the church is founded on the prophets, those who spoke for God and applied the word on God's behalf, not just as good interpreters of the word, and those who were eyewitnesses sent by Jesus to declare his life and ministry to the rest. Those are the prophets and the apostles. And Jesus is the chief cornerstone by which they are measured. They must be consistent with Jesus. So the point of this 
for Paul, I think, is that we can build on no other foundation. You cannot be Christian and discard the prophets, the Old Testament. You cannot be Christian and discard the apostles, the New Testament. They are the foundation. The building that God is building is built on that foundation. And of course, Jesus is the chief cornerstone. He is the stone by which the others are measured. But they are together, the foundation. What is the church? The church is intended by God to be a living temple for God's presence to dwell within. Each of us are living stones built upon the foundation of the prophets God has sent and the apostles who were eyewitnesses to Jesus and communicated with the church the teachings that he had delivered to them with Jesus as the chief cornerstone. This is the church. God is dwelling in a people. We are the body of Christ, Paul will say in 1 Corinthians. The one way God wants the people of the earth to unify is by their faith in Christ, to become part of this living temple in which God will dwell. And God is not compelling folks to become part of this. He is inviting them which means there will be plenty who say no. So Christians have to be willing to be part of the kingdom of God in the middle of a world where most people are not choosing it. And that is who the church is. We are in exile. We are not in charge. We are not in control. We have faith in Jesus and he is our Lord. I hope that helps you today.